Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, how is plastic pollution changing our oceans? One Pocketuck, Connecticut artist is working alongside scientists to depict the interweaving of the synthetic and natural world. Artist Elizabeth Ellenwood joins us in a few minutes. First, the candidates running in the 5th Congressional District met for a Connecticut public debate last night at Central Connecticut State University. Incumbent Democrat Johanna Hayes faces a challenge by former state senator George Logan, a Republican. Now, the 5th is the most competitive House seat in the state. More than $5 million of outside money has flowed into this race, reports the Connecticut Mirror. Abortion rights and the economy were just some of the issues that came up last night. For analysis, joining us now on Zoom is Dr. Bilal Siku, Hilliard College Associate Professor of Politics and Government at University of Hartford. Bilal, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Bilal, I know you were watching. This was the last of Connecticut Public's debate series, and I think the second debate between these two candidates this week probably the last time these opponents will face off before election day. What were your takeaways? Well, I I think last night debate was interesting on a a number of levels. I mean, one, clearly there is a contrast between the candidates, a fairly sharp contrast on a number of issues ranging from, you know, their discussion about uh, the Biden-Harris record, you know, single party control of Congress, issues like abortion, um, gun control, and a range of other sort of hot button cultural issues. And so I think this debate clearly means that voters have a choice. When you mentioned abortion, that definitely came up, as you said, and, and Hayes said she would absolutely vote yes if there was a federal vote codifying abortion rights. Her opponent, Logan, said he would not support a bill aimed at codifying Roe v. Wade in federal law, going on to say the decision was made by the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and he, then he goes on to say, I will do everything in my power to make sure that a woman's right to choose is in no way infringed from what we have in Connecticut. Hayes then addressed a consistent talking point around late-term abortions that George Logan has brought up. She's making a major clarification here. Let's take a listen. They keep going unchecked, saying his opponent supports late-term abortions and parental notification. What I support is codifying the language of Roe, which says that up to viability and beyond that in the good faith consultation with the medical professional. That means exactly what I said. The decision is between a woman and her doctor. When we talk about parental notification, at the point where a 15, 16, 7-year-old, 17-year-old finds themselves in their that position, something at home is most likely already disrupted and they need to be able to seek help. I was pregnant at 17. This idea that you have to get someone at home to sign off or allow you to get help presupposes that you come from a two-parent supportive household. 
That is not the case for everyone. So, Bilal, what did you think of that exchange and this major clarification that uh, Johanna Hayes uh, made last night? Yeah, and I think it was actually one of the stronger moments for her during the debate in which she, you know, really tried to clarify where she stands on this issue. I thought the other thing, the other point she made that I found really fascinating was this question around how, you know, she's pro-choice. And one of the things she said about this notion of states, for example, making the decision to uh, allow abortion or not allow, and she says, look, essentially individual states making that decision is not choice. And so I think that was a, a very strong statement on her part. Less clear to me was where exactly Logan stands, or, you know, stands on this with regard to, you know, the issue she's raised about the Roe standard. It's not altogether clear. I know nationally for Republicans, they've talked a lot about finding so a so-called middle ground in which rape and incest would be, uh, you know, those things in which abortions would be allowed. But that's really a, a, a quite minimal sort of standard compared to, I think, what really is at stake with the uh, Dodd decision. Another question that came up fairly early in the debate uh, was on the issue of, of rights of trans athletes to compete. Uh, George Logan and Johanna Hayes differs differ quite on this issue. Logan takes a hard stance. Uh, Johanna noted that on several other issues, her opponent deferred to the state, but not on trans rights. What was your reaction there? Again, I think a, a really interesting moment in the debate, and I, I listened very closely to what Logan said, and I, and I was struck by when he differentiated between, you know, saying that he doesn't believe in discrimination, but he was very clear, and I think if you listen closely to what he said, he talked about transgender athletes, and he, reused, he used the, the pronoun male competing with females or competing with girls. And he was consistent in framing it that way. And I think that says a lot probably where his position is at, really, I think, on this issue of transgender women. And, um, you know, and clearly the difference between the two candidates really stood out on that. Uh, we've been hearing from Republicans about uh, the issues that they think that um, their constituents are most concerned about. That, of course, is the economy. And then there was a shift uh, when uh, Logan uh, gave a rebuttal on inflation to touch on immigration and the opioid crisis. Let's hear it. And what about the opioid epidemic? I mean, there's, you know, time is winding down here. We need to talk about that. You know, we need to secure our southern borders. We need to control the inflow of fentanyl. My opponent hasn't said a word about it. I want to focus on issues that are important to the people of the 5th Congressional District. And the opiate epidemic is high on the list. Why hasn't my opponent done more to be a voice for us regarding the southern border? Why does she bring the Vice President of the United States of America here and not ask her, what's the plan to secure our southern borders? What's the plan? To tackle inflation. Mm. Uh, Johanna Hayes then replied, is there no opioid epidemic in the third district? Perhaps making this larger point that you know, her opponent can't say every national issue doesn't matter to the fifth. Uh, so what stood out to you there below? Yeah, again, I think this was that moment where Logan was really trying to, you know, elevate this issue that I think is really working for Republicans, this issue around crime in the broader sense. And certainly 
the opioid crisis has been a, a crisis that has really hit the nation hard. And it's been that way for a number of years. And so it wasn't a surprise that he tried to do that. I mean, it's clear from the debate, you know, what Logan was attempting to do was to make this a real referendum on the Biden-Harris administration and also linking Pelosi and single party control of Congress and making the case that Democrats have really failed to deal with some of those core issues that are affecting American families like the opioid crisis, issues like inflation, issues like, you know, just the cost of food at grocery stores. And it was interesting because I think Hayes clearly it was there to defend the Biden-Harris uh, agenda and to defend what is, you know, what Congress has produced under Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. Um, and so a lot of their back and forth about various sort of programs and various pieces of legislation that have passed, I think was really interesting because it really drew a sharp contrast between Logan's position that a lot of this is excessive spending that a lot of this is not really focused on the real kinds of issues and Hayes really making the case that this is actually dealing with the kind of pocketbook issues, whether it's or issues that people in her district and across the country care about, such as mental health and other kinds of issues that came up during the debate. You're hearing Dr. Bilal Siku, Hillier College Associate Professor of Politics and Government and University of Hartford, as we talk about this 5th Congressional District debate held last night on the campus of Central Connecticut State University. Um, if you were watching, if you live in the 5th, we'd love to hear uh, your observations as Election Day draws near 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Bilal, when we think about all the issues that you've raised and the 5th congressional district being the most competitive, uh, do you feel like the the issues about uh, people's pocketbooks will be what would bring them to the polls or more about these social issues that we heard at the top of the debate? Yeah, well, the conventional wisdom, um, you know, among political scientists who study elections is that pocketbook issues, you know, are first and foremost in the minds of voters, certainly with the problem of inflation and, and real uncertainty about whether we're in a recession or heading to a recession will certainly mean that these issues will be front and center. What's really, you know, I think more curious a question to ask is whether some of the cultural issues that are playing out in other parts of the country, like critical race theory, for example, or transgender rights will really be those kind of issues that will move voters and, and bring them to the polls in a way that they may perhaps be more impactful in some of the more conservative states and, you know, particularly in the South and in the, in the uh, upper Midwest. And so, I mean, it's a, a real question about what will exactly stick. But I think clearly Logan's effort that night, he returned to it um, where he may not have had a great deal of depth in terms of talking about what exactly he would support and call for. He really wanted to make this about the Biden Harris, uh, you know, administration and their failures to deal with uh, real issues that affect Connecticut voters. And as I said before, Hayes's, you know, position was to defend that record and to defend her record and her part she's played in helping to vote for and support those things that she think are really important to the fifth district and that she's brought back, whether it's money for infrastructure or money for mental health or other kinds of issues that affect people in that district.
So we've talked about how issues surrounding uh, people's pocketbooks will bring them to the polls. Uh, when we hear about uh, the conversations around uh, crime, again, Logan linking opioids and immigration, is that part of this uh, larger Republican playbook? Uh, is, is crime another issue uh, below that will bring people towards the, uh, to the polls on November 8th? Absolutely. I think over the last couple of years, we saw an uptick in homicides, though nationally other statistics have not shot up in that way. Connecticut has also talked about how crime is not as high as it was. We're nowhere near some of the historic highs we hit in the past. And yet the perception, especially in the suburbs and also among many residents who live in central cities who are seeing homicide rates go up, is that crime is a problem, if not out of control. And so Republicans are pushing hard on that issue and really making the case that, you know, people are not safer under this administration. I mean, it links to also the gun issue as well. I mean, I think, you know, there was a real sharp contrast between, you know, Hayes and Logan. Hayes is in favor of a, a federal ban on assault weapons, re returning that ban and also doing more with regard to background checks. And of course, Logan op opposes the federal ban. And in that sense, I mean, again, voters have a real contrast between the candidates. Mm -hmm. You know, as a, a political scientist, we've got we've talked about some of the issues. But when you're watching these two candidates again, uh, how they perform under pressure, obviously you have an incumbent and then a former state senator uh, who before uh, this race, maybe a lot of people didn't know unless they were, it was the district that uh, George Logan was representing. And so what did you think about that performative part of debates and how they both did? Yeah, I think that, you know, both of them clearly, you know, came there to uh, project a certain kind of image and to push the issues that they cared about in a certain way. You know, Hayes has the advantages of being the sitting, uh, you know, member of Congress. And so I thought she demonstrated a, a much deeper sort of ability to talk about the issues and to really break down pieces of the legislation that has moved through Congress and Biden has uh signed into law and was able to describe those things in a way that Logan really didn't have that kind of depth. And I think that's purely a reflection of the fact that he's not there actually, you know, making the laws and, and really doing the sausage making, as they like to say. And so that clearly came out. But then he had a message and he stayed on message. He stayed on point, which was really, as I said before, to make that case that, you know, the Biden administration has failed the country and that there needs to be a change, that single party rule in Congress um, hurts the country, that he would be someone who would go there and be bipartisan and would work across you know the aisle with you know with democrats to try to get things done hayes of course responded that in order to get things done you know without support from republicans in congress and she checked off those various issues in which republicans voted no on legislation the democrats were advancing that that single party sort of rule or dominance is really the only way to get things done mm -hmm. Last up, I had mentioned this is a pretty close race, according to the polls. That might have to do with all the money being poured into the 5th District. Outside money, Bilal, I believe more than $5 million. Uh, so I'm curious your thoughts on that. And what do you expect to see in the last two and a half weeks before Election Day in this race? You know, one of the things that has struck me about the ads that have run, and I saw one this morning that was quite negative, actually came out of the Hayes uh, campaign, is just how negative a number of these ads have been. And so a lot of that outside money, of course, is pushing 
what I think are very negative ads and not really saying enough about what the candidates would do once they get into office or return to office. And so I think in many ways it's it's a disservice to voters because they don't really hear a strong case being made about here are the issues and here's the way in which I would address those issues if I had the opportunity to do that. And so I imagine in the next several weeks, Republicans really feel like this is a seat that they could potentially pick up as they you know, really make their effort to gain majority status in the House. And so I think we're going to see even more money come in and a round of, of ads, you know, hitting us over the air and quite negative ads, you know, over the next few weeks. You've been hearing Dr. Bilal Siku, Hillier College Associate Professor of Politics and Government at University of Hartford. Always a pleasure to hear from you, Bilal. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. Take care. I mean, Lucy, why does he think about Pelosi? It was a long, long night. Oh, no. Oh, no. You didn't go there. You didn't go there. (laughs) This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nelpathanchel. I want to give uh, props to Frankie Graziano, who moderated that debate last night at Central Connecticut State University. Coming up after a short break, we're going to pivot from politics to pollution. Connecticut artist Elizabeth Ellenwood has been working alongside scientists researching how plastic pollution is changing our oceans. It's the focus of a book called Interweaving of the Synthetic and Natural World and an upcoming photography exhibit. We learn more. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. How is plastic pollution changing our oceans? Elizabeth Ellenwood is an artist from Pocatuck, Connecticut, who explores this pressing question through her art, capturing images of ocean pollution that are beautiful and conceptually shocking. Ellenwood is back in Connecticut after working alongside scientists at the Norwegian Geotechnical Institute as a Fulbright Scholar ultimately producing a book and a photography series titled The Interweaving of the Synthetic and Natural World. She joins us now ahead of the U.S. debut of her interweaving exhibit. Elizabeth Ellenwood, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Thank you so much for having me. 
Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, we spoke to you for just a short uh, time um, several months ago, but uh, you were in Norway working with environmental chemists and marine biologists to create this book and a photo series. And that, again, is titled The Interweaving of the Synthetic and Natural World that will be on display at UConn's Avery Point campus on November 3rd. So how did this all get started, Elizabeth? Um, I would say my interest in it started when I was in uh, graduate school at the University of Connecticut, and I was working on my thesis. And um, that's kind of when I started working with bringing my interest of the ocean and a lot of um, Yeah, a lot of just like my upbringing of being around the water and wanting to do more conservation work and then mixing it with my photography and art background. And so um, I really enjoyed combining these two interests in my life. So um, I started looking into how else I could work with with art as communication. And so I looked into the Fulbright program and um, it's a really amazing program. I highly encourage anyone to look into uh, the Fulbright in case you want to go to a different country and study with other people. Um, and yeah, so I started looking into it probably in 2019. I think I started researching how to how to um, make a project uh, based about ocean and science and art. And I emailed uh, Hans Peter Arp through the Norwegian Geotechnical Institute, and it was like kind of amazing how quickly and easily it came together um, after emailing him. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Hans Peter Arp. So he's a chemistry professor at the Norwegian Geotechnical Institute. So tell us a little bit about him and then the process of working with him. He's a scientist. You're an artist. Yeah, and he's a really, really cool person. Um, so I, pre- it was really great. So I pretty much sent him an email back in 2019 that was like, hey, this is who I am. This is kind of the project I'm looking into doing. And um, he responded pretty quickly and was like, I love this idea of art and science working together and science communication. I think it's great. Um, so I applied for the Fulbright and he wrote a really wonderful letter of recommendation um, and then everything kept getting postponed, right? Because it was I was supposed to be there in 2020. And then we all know what's been going on for the past couple of years. So everything kept getting kicked back. But we kept emailing about like our projects that we were doing or just like things of interest. Um, so when I arrived, we kind of had this approach of just sharing resources and having conversations of things that we were interested in. And um, I started making images in the lab and I just started sending him photographs of what I was making. And we had this connection of he was working on writing and research about, you know, how plastic and nature are turning into this new this new thing. Right. You can't really easily separate it. And I was making these photographs that really visually showed it. Um, so that's kind of how the the book kind of organically started through an email, actually, um, of like an email chain back and forth of here are these images, here's here's this conversation of writing about how we're both seeing it in our work um, in different ways. So that was really great. And working with him and his team were just absolutely amazing people and just like really excited about what they're studying, which is hard because it's pollution, right? So it's like very sad and depressing, but these scientists are very, um, they're very good at what they do. And they're, they're really good at um, 
remaining like positive about it in a way, which mm-hmm. I was kind of shocked by. Like everyone was like, yeah. And then you keep asking questions and you keep researching and then you just keep going. Um, so that was really great. It was really great to be a part of. And you're focusing on microplastics, uh, also known as, mm. I guess, nurdles. And so this idea mm. of something that, you know, is invisible to a lot of us, but it's there and it's impacting uh, our marine ecosystems. And so why it was so important to have this collaboration when we think about, Mm. um, you know, what scientists are uncovering and ways to make it more accessible, Elizabeth? Right, exactly. And the nurdles were something, the nurdles you actually can see with like, you know, you can just pick them up and see them. Um, and I was finding them on the beach. And so for those that don't know what a nurdle is, which sounds really cool, um, but it's actually a plastic pellet, which is considered the primary plastic, right? It's like the building blocks of what you need before you make the bottles or the plastic objects or things like this. So like it hasn't even been made into what it's going to be for its life. And it's still, it's still ending up in our environment. Um, so I found those on a beach in Oslo and, um, it was just kind of by accident. I was sitting in the sand and I just was poking around in the sand and I started to find all these perfectly shaped circles, which are the, the nurdles. And I realized they were plastic and I had read about them before. So I took a photo and I sent an email to Hans Peter and I was like, why am I finding all these nurdles here? And um, he sent me some uh, some resources of some shipping containers that were transporting all of these plastic pellets, which is very common and happens everywhere in the world. Um, and what happens is they can get damaged and they leak into the ocean and then they end up on the beaches. They end up, you know, um, a bunch of fish eat them like it's it's very sad, but they're so small that like they are mm-hmm. like they look really appetizing to a tiny fish because they look like they should be food. Um, so yeah, so, so those you can see, but the other ones that you're looking under the microscope, it's really incredible to then see all of these small fibers and fragments, um, that you can't see with your, with your normal vision. Um, and it's something that needs to be shown and talked about so we can kind of understand it more. Right. Our listeners can get an idea of some of the images uh, that you've uh, that you've captured. Again, Elizabeth Ellen would just go to our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. So in this interweaving series, you've isolated these nurdles, which you've described for us. And we see these portraits in a grid throughout your book. So tell us more about the photo series. And can you describe some of uh, your, your work? Yeah, so... Um the book kind of goes throughout um, different images that are both taken in the lab through a microscope, but also um, I call them my in the field photographs. So in the, in the natural environment, just going around um, and seeing the pollution just um, out in the landscape. And I think it's really important to include both because you, you don't, you don't really know what you're looking at sometimes in the book. So it kind of makes you question, is this really big? Is this really small? And I like playing with that in my, in my image making, um, because the pollution issues are big and they are small and they're very important to think about. Um, and then to, to also see moments where you think that the plastic pollution can be easily separated, right? There's a a spread in the book that's got a water bottle um, 
on a, a bunch of rocks and some seaweeds entangled. And then on the other side of the page, there's another water bottle. So they look very similar, um, but they both were taken in different areas, but the pollution is the same. So I'm kind of trying to like hint at the multi, the multi-level problem that we encounter, right? So it's like same pollution, different countries. Could it be separated? You kind of think it can be. And then you go throughout the book and start to see really that interweaving and that the, that combination that's starting to happen where like the plastic and the like natural matter is just kind of becoming one tangled mess, which is really fascinating. There's another great example of what you've just described. Uh, the images of a small teapot shaped piece of what looks like <laughs> earth or turf or trash covered mm. in part by this bright green piece of plastic. So when you look at it, it's really striking. It's also a, a really beautiful, uh, the image that you've captured. But at the same time, we think about the impact again on our oceans, it can be horrifying. So so tell us about um, this, 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 uh, this image that you captured and what you want people to think about when they're looking at it. Yeah, that image is actually one of, um, one of the first ones that I made in the lab. And it's from a compost study that the scientists were doing. Um, so it's about food waste, right? So it's like uh, that green bag that or that green piece that you see is actually a plastic bag that all the food waste is being collected in, um, in Oslo. And so it's kind of becoming a part of this organic material where they're trying to um, look at the compost and see how much plastic is kind of ending up there and then ask all those questions and see what the solutions are for either separating it, but also like, you know, maybe not using plastic bags to collect all the food waste is also an option. Um, but I think you mentioned how it's beautiful. I think it's really, really important um, for me to make work that has some sense of beauty because it can get a little depressing to continually photograph trash and pollution. Mm -hmm. So for one reason, I, I make images that are beautiful because I definitely need to remain hopeful myself. But I also think that we tend to look at things a little bit longer if they're, if they're beautiful. So I want to make work in a way that invites people in with this beauty. And then you kind of get to start thinking more about what the actual object is and what your relationship to the problem is. So it's, it's this little trick that I also like using of like, come look at this. It's beautiful. Now I want you to think about it though. And what else could it be? And how else can we help this situation? How do people mm. respond when you describe uh, the work that you've been doing, Elizabeth, uh, when they hear mm. that you're an artist, you know, and your work is your photography and, and thinking about, um, you know, what people might uh, perceive as what um, those are taking pictures of, but you're taking pictures, as you mentioned, of trash. <laughs> yeah. and, and again, yeah. this larger point about what is happening to our, our mm. oceans, our marine ecosystem. So what are the reactions you get? Yeah. So, um, you know, initially when I say I'm a photographer, a lot of people are like, oh, so like you photograph weddings. And I'm like, definitely not. Um, <laughs> that's not my subject matter. Like that's a, a very great thing to do. But like I can't photograph people. So I, you know, I definitely um, am not in that realm. And then I start to kind of describe what I do. And then at some point I bluntly am like, I photograph trash that I collect on the beach. And like that's pretty, you know, you can understand it a little bit more. Um, so, and then it creates this great conversation of like, oh my gosh, I read this article about, you know, um, you know, plastics in air and plastics in the snow and, and all of these things. So usually people like this, this conversation just 
keeps going, which is really great. And that's something that I love about um, communication, but also about collaboration. So you can start to like meet people through these conversations and be like, okay, so what are your skills and thoughts about this? And then let's get together and share skill sets and, and, you know, make things, um, hopefully, you know, make the world a better place. (laughs) Um, So yeah, so everyone's been pretty responsive, which is really great. Again, you're hearing Elizabeth Ellenwood here where we live talking about her book and upcoming photography exhibit titled The Interweaving of the Synthetic and Natural World. There's more information on our website about that exhibit at ctpublic.org slash where we live. Um, some of the other uh, photography uh, in this book, you played with scale in a, a two page spread that's actually fairly early on in the book. On the left, we're looking through a microscope and on the right onto a speck of styrofoam on the shore. Uh, talk about that, that um, the, the way you've captured this. Yeah, that, that one's great. You're talking about the one that kind of looks like a moonscape, right? Like the, yes. um, yeah, like it looks a little like space, um, right. which I thought was fun. Yeah. So um, what I started to notice, and this was kind of by accident, was what I was seeing in the lab, I also was seeing out in the field and in the landscape. So like all of my shapes and my colors were starting to reference one another and it wasn't on purpose, but it was more when I was sitting down and looking at all the images together that I saw this like collaboration between scale, right? So it's like, this thing is ridiculously small and tiny. And then this landscape is, you kind of can't tell what size it is. Um, So when I was looking at making a book, it, it really made sense to me to start playing with that scale even more and kind of, you know, walking people through um, these images and being like, you know, the shapes are similar. You kind of can't tell what's going on. And, but I want you to think about it a little bit longer. I want you to, to stare at the page a little bit longer and have your own reactions to it. Um, yeah. And the, yeah, the, just the styrofoam is really um, incredible, but really deadly to the environment as well. Um, so yeah, it's this idea of small and large and like the pollution issues are also, can be down to the tiny, 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 (laughs) tiny scale as well as ridiculously large. So, yeah. You also chose orange as a color uh, for the book. And I'm wondering if you can describe that as an intentional decision. Uh, Tell us about that. Because I mean, you see a lot of the plastic things that are made are very bright and bold, like you, they're eye catching, right? So like, you kind of have this like, almost fake color that we we tend to like gravitate towards and see. Um, So I, I really loved that idea of having an orange book cover. Um, Also, because orange is also alarming, right? So you kind of think about it, and you're like, okay, something's up here. Um, and it's a very active color. So there's nothing subtle about it because there's nothing subtle about the pollution problem that we're in right now. Um, so it's really bright and bold. Um, yeah, so that, that was definitely going on in the back of the head when I was trying to design the, the book. I wanted to ask you before we head to break, Elizabeth, there was another image uh, of bicycles with muscles growing on them. Can you talk about that and what you uh, found as you were, you know, again, going out with scientists? Uh, I think you're meeting every Sunday and you'd be um, looking at what was uh, being brought out from the water. I wonder if you can describe that for our listeners. Yeah, so that came from um, the Sunday cleanup that you mentioned, which is actually through the Fjord cleanup group. And um, they're not scientists or just everyone Mm -hmm. in the community. It's an international group of people that 
we all would meet up on Sundays and um, literally just fish trash out of the fjord. And it was really fun. Um, I started early on. I think I found them on Instagram. And as soon as I met everyone through the, the group, everyone was just so wonderful. And we would get together and dive and have kayaks and and fish all this stuff out of the, the fjord. But a lot of it was bicycles and scooters. So like those electrical scooters were ending up in the fjord. Um, and it's really shocking to see those things. But also you start to see what starts growing on the man-made objects that enter the water. So like there's mussels, there's the barnacles, there's starfish, there's urchins. So like not only is the pollution affecting the water just by being there, but then things are starting to grow on them as well. So it creates this, again, another layer of a, of a pollution problem. Um, but, oh, my God, it was so great. The Fjord Cleanup Group is, is really amazing. I highly recommend checking them out on Instagram and on their website. They're awesome. We're talking with Connecticut artist Elizabeth Ellenwood again here where we live about her book and upcoming photography exhibit, The Interweaving of the Synthetic and Natural World, looking at how plastic pollution impacts our oceans. You can preview some of her images and find more information at ctpublic.org slash where we live. The book Liz produces also linked on our website. We'll continue talking after a short break. What questions do you have for her? You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Monday, New Haven resident Winfred Rembert was a civil rights activist who survived a near lynching and spent seven years in prison. He passed away last year. On the next Where We Live, we talk about his 2022 Pulitzer Prize winning biography, Chasing Me to My Grave, an artist's memoir of the Jim Crow South. That conversation Monday. Now, my guest today is Fulbright Scholar and Connecticut Sea Grant recipient Elizabeth Ellenwood, who spent a fellowship year in Norway studying and photographing microplastic pollution found in oceans. It's the focus of a book and upcoming exhibit titled The Interweaving of the Synthetic and Natural World. will be going on display at the Lexi von Schlipp Gallery at Yukon's Avery Point, November 3rd. More information on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Elizabeth, your work has been described as alluring and disturbing. Uh, your photographs illuminating in detail the reality of ocean pollution and the new worlds or new marine ecosystems created in its wake. I wonder if you can describe another piece that you photographed uh, in the book. There's a two-page spread on the left, a photo of a small piece of bright white styrofoam on a mossy rock. And then on the right, there's uh, what looks like a yellowish rock in a pile of what are unmistakably rocks. Is that styrofoam too? Tell us about this pair. Um, yeah, so that one's really interesting because <laughs> it is styrofoam, but it blends so perfectly in with the rest of the rocks, right? Like you, I remember standing on the beach, looking over and being like, oh, wow, that's a nice cluster of rocks. And then looking a little bit closer and a little bit closer and then poking it and being like, oh, you are not a rock. Like you are actually squishy. 
Um, so it is this way that the pollution is becoming like hidden within the landscape as well. And actually the introduction of the book um, has a piece written by Rebecca Altman, who's amazing. And she's like a, a plastic historian. And she writes about how you have to train your eye to start looking for these things. And you're going to mistake, you know, um, bone for plastic and, and things like this. And just the way she writes about it is really, um, it's really fascinating, but I feel like it really hits it's true for how I feel when I'm, I'm looking for pollution on the beach because it does tend to hide and you kind of have to get your eyes looking and thinking um, a little bit more critically, which is really what I hope my images do for other people as well. So they can start to see it as well when they're in the where they're like out in the world, in the environment. So you see this as a good example of how you want people to engage with the environment and also your work. Alan, can you hear me? Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, am I here? Uh, yep, yep. We're, we're good. Okay. Um, you know, I'm earlier so I brought up earlier I brought up how you um, went out with volunteers and, and when you were in Norway, and you know there'd be bicycles and and scooters that were getting uh, you know taken out of the fjord. And there was actually a local blogger in Connecticut who tweeted about how New Haven Riverkeeper Peter Davis pulled out a vacuum cleaner out of the Quinnipiac River. And it had, quote, become like a little reef with barnacles and oysters encrusted on it and crabs living inside. And he thought about putting it back into the river because sometimes ecology, quote, is sometimes counterintuitive. So I wonder if you can respond to that when you think about how you observe these bikes in a similar condition. Right. Yeah, that's something I definitely thought about. And I talked to Hans Peter about um and other scientists of like, when do you stop removing the trash from the water if there is so much growth and so much life on it? The problem for the, the scooters, especially that we were finding is they have batteries in them, right? So like mm -hmm. the battery is a whole problem and it's leaching out into the water. Um, so yeah, I mean, I definitely think there are moments where you can leave things if they're not gonna harm the environment more. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, you mentioned uh, Hans-Peter Arp earlier again. He's the chemistry professor you worked with at the Norwegian Geotechnical Institute, and his words are featured throughout this book that you produced. Uh, tell, us about what, tell, tell us again why this was such an important component and you know, how the book uh, came together again, the words that you wanted to make sure that were highlighted with the photography captured. Yeah, so when we started the book early on, um, we emailed back and forth some ideas and I started sending like a rough layout of images that I wanted to work with. And then he started to do uh, the writing component. Um, but when he did the writing component, he sent me a Word document that had all of, you know, like the paragraphs um, of, of his words. And I found myself like reading it, but then having trouble really focusing on it because there's so many really important elements that he talks about. Um, so I, I kind of started to play around with the words and move them around uh, spacing wise throughout the page. And um, I sent that to him as a draft to be like, okay, what if we start piecing down the thoughts that you're, that you're writing about so that people have more time to kind of digest not only the images, but also the words and the things that you're talking about, like the plastosphere and how things are interweaving. Um, because I think sometimes 
the science writing can be a little heavy. So sometimes we skip over it, right? We see it and we're like, okay, well, I know it's important, but it's a lot of information. So we kind of skip over the, the really dense paragraphs. Um, so yeah, the more we started like kind of cutting it apart and playing with it, I think it really started to become more successful to work with both the images and the writing. Can you read a, an excerpt for us? Oh, sure. Yeah. Let me just get that. Okay. So, oops. Um, this is kind of later on in the book. So we've already gone over quite a few um, different pollution problems, but this is more about the interweaving. Um, okay. Plastic does not accumulate ultimately as just debris that can be removed, but it also makes a hybrid of synthetic polymer breakdown particles and organic matter, like natural soil and sediment particles. At the molecular level, the microplastics, nanoplastics, and large molecules interweave with natural organic matter. The two essentially coalesce and become one. A new family of particles and macromolecules, not synthetic, not natural, but something in between, changing the chemistry of soil, sediments, and oceanic chemistry at the most fundamental level. The detritus of life mixes with the detritus of plastic to form something unique, a dendritic organoplastoid. What is unknown is if this could change essential processes like nutrient cycles and carbon pumps in the ocean. Could these dendritic organoplastoids make sediments and soils less fertile? Plastic interweaves with the organic matter. The biology grows on the plastic and becomes one with the plastic, leading to a potential future where organic matter is forever changed by being this hybrid. Our grandchildren's soil and seabed will no longer be our grandparents' soil and seabed, but something else, maybe benign, maybe very scary, a planetary threat. Mm. Again, you're hearing Elizabeth Ellenwood here where we live, reading from the book, The Interweaving of the Synthetic and Natural World. It's like a collaboration with her and Hans Peter Arp, the chemistry professor that she worked with at the Norwegian Geotechnical Institute. Um, she's a photographer, and we've been talking about how she's been capturing plastic pollution, images of plastic pollution in our oceans, uh, making people think more about uh, the, the long-term impact of this. Uh, so this exhibit is coming up again. November 3rd at UConn's Avery Point. Uh, you must be pretty excited and, you know, do you anticipate yeah. um, a lot of uh, people, again, asking you questions about, you know, not only your time in Norway, but, you know, the larger point that you're trying uh, pe to make people think about in terms of our planet and what's uh, happening to our oceans? Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited and it feels very special to have this exhibition at UConn Avery Point. Um, because it's such a special place. Also, it like really, um, you know, going to grad school at UConn, it also feels like really full circle. And then I get to celebrate this moment of, of doing this crazy thing of living in another country for a year and, um, and being able to like be a fly on the wall and learn all of these things in the science lab. And um, yeah, I really hope that lots of people come and ask lots of questions because I feel like there's so many more questions um, that can be asked and that can start all these conversations of like, okay, like how, how can we individually help? How can we help 
more um, through our community, through, through um, you know, anything from single-use plastics to, to um, other sustainable mindsets that we all can work together towards. So I think it would be really great to just keep these conversations going. Mm-hmm. Uh, given what you've observed, uh, what changes have you made in your personal life, Ellen, uh, Elizabeth, if you don't mind me asking? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no worries. I mean, I... I try to do the, you know, even very basic things of like always remembering your bags when you go like your, you know, um, uh, bags when you go to the grocery store or things like that. I always try to also say like, it's a weird concept, but I always try to say I don't need a straw before the, you know, the server walks away whenever they're trying to bring you something. Um, But the biggest, I think, shift that I've had recently was I also attended a, um, a series of workshops by the Sustainable Dark Room over in England. And it was all about how you can start to use like household waste, like tea and coffee as a part of your developing in the dark room. So I'm really um, looking forward to start making, you know, making developers and things out of um, like things that could go into the compost. Right. So and a composting is a big thing I do as well. Actually, I bring it to my mother's house because she composts for me, which is awesome. So I know I haven't seen my mom in a while as my compost bin gets too full. And I'm like, oh, OK. <laughs> um, but composting is great. And um, yeah, just using less materials than you think that you actually need um, that mm-hmm. that switch in the brain is also really important. And that's something I've been trying to be better at. Yeah. Elizabeth, thank you so much for all the time you've given us today on the show. And uh, congratulations. Thank you so much. And yeah, I hope everyone can make uh, the November 3rd opening from 530 to 730. I'll give an artist talk at 630. And uh, yeah, this has been really lovely. So thank you so much, Lucy. That's Elizabeth Ellenwood, an artist from Pocketuck, Connecticut, whose latest work and upcoming exhibit is titled The Interweaving of the Synthetic and Natural World, uh, going on display again at UConn's Avery Point. More information on our website, as well as some images that Elizabeth has captured, ctpublic.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Special thanks to Dylan Reyes. Have a great weekend. <laughs>